Well, hello there, ladies and men of the gentle disposition, and welcome back once again to Doom Radio, also known as Tango TV, the only Doom podcast with two names. Can you believe it? What an amazing feature. Um, now, today's guest is uh, today's guest is actually more like this year's guest, if we're honest, going by current production rates. Um, I hope you haven't been holding your breath for this one, as the saying goes, because uh, you'll have drowned. Basically, there's there's no chance you'll have survived that wait. Um, it's been way too long between drinks. Ha! Uh, I do have another interview uh, in the works. It's a- it's actually already being recorded. It's just sitting on my desktop waiting to be edited. That's with Obsidian, who most people will recognise as the creator of Mascom Source, certainly most recently. Not a gentleman's magazine, I'm told. Apparently, I know I was surprised as well. It, it's actually just a single level for Doom. Um, kind of unfortunate, but uh, look, look forward to that one. By all means, just conveniently forget about it for about a week or two, uh, or a month or so, um, and then you'll be presently surprised when it when it rocks up again. Because um, I don't want you dying a second time, right? Um, our listenership isn't very large, to be honest. So we need we need everyone to stay alive. So pop your pills, take your vitamins, right? So. <laughs> What are you talking about? So today's episode uh, <laughs> interview is with Mike McDee, uh, better known as MP on the forums, um, and the creator of Strange Aeons, which is the 45 uh, or 5 episode megawad for Z-Doom with a distinctly uh, clean aesthetic and sort of retro feel to it. We talk a little bit about that, but most of the discussion is surrounding, first of all, um, his two episodes Project Dinohar and Midgard Outlaw, which tie in with his uh, novels. He's, he's predominantly a writer of fiction, uh, as well as an illustrator and someone who's incredibly knowledgeable about film uh, and games, the indie scene in particular, uh, and of course writing. So we get into all of these areas and talking about um, the relationship between um, narrative and, and creating a tie-in series and how unusual that is with a game like Doom which really isn't known at all for its storytelling uh, power. So I found it to be a very interesting discussion and I'll just shut up so we can get on with the interview. How about that? How does that sound? Don't die! And uh, here's Impy talking about his weird name. Yeah, uh, I get more intimate version of that story. I guess I was really inspired. I was really inspired by uh, Imp Encounter or something, and I just felt that that was the name for me. <laughs> that is that is not the origin uh, <laughs> that we were looking for, but no doubt some corners of the community will be will be thankful that you managed to bring that up somehow. I'm going to be getting messages from the weirdest, the weirder corners of the Doom the Doom community now. Some strange, some strange, some strange, some strange aeons. You want to read my fanfic? No, no, I don't. (laughs) Thank you, though. I appreciate the offer. Particularly Job, who has something in a mancubus going on there. I'm not going to... Oh, yeah. God. I (laughs) I forgot about that avatar. (laughs) All right, so the audience will have heard uh, a bit of an introduction about you. You are foremostly a writer, I think it's probably safe to say, before you are a Doom level designer. Certainly, it's your profession. Yeah. Um, when you give us a quick rundown of, uh, of your most recent releases in the literary world, um, what I've done in the Doom community, um, for starters, 
I uh, I make a lot of mods. Uh, I've made some maps for like little community things because uh, I thought it would be kind of fun to join. And, you know, like I've, I found that I do enjoy mapping when I really get into it. Uh, but mostly I make mods that are either um, sometimes gameplay mods, but mostly uh, mostly like, like TCs and level sets and such or partial conversions. Uh, so that's most, I guess that's, if I'm known for anything in community, I'm known for that. And I'm known for, well, I used to be for like a week. I was known for the, uh, the little doom novels that I wrote. Cause I, I tried taking a stab at it. Um, and that's, that's essentially what I've done in the community outside of the community. Uh, I've been a writer, artist, and game designer since kindergarten, really. Uh, the first story I ever wrote was in, I believe it was in kindergarten, and uh, it was the sort of thing you'd expect from a five-year-old or five or six-year-old boy who's like his first foray into storytelling. It was about these two guys in robot suits who were fighting in an arena battle, and um, the bad—I can't remember the good guy's name, but the bad guy's name was Spike. But again, being that I was in kindergarten, I spelt it S P I C K which is a certain racial slur, which my Latino babysitter thought was the funniest <laughs> thing you'd ever seen. So, uh, <laughs> and uh, I've really been uh, writing, drawing and designing things ever since. Uh, I even, even when I was in kindergarten, I was making little board game things based on what I was learning in class. And uh, I made this one game that my teacher used in her classroom with, uh, for several years afterward, because it was, it, apparently it was functional enough. Uh, so there's always been a love for game design in general there. I was going to say uh, Spike is actually a pretty, pretty safe fallback name if you want to just pick out villains out of a box, but then, uh, <laughs> then the extra tip is information. As, yeah. <laughs> as, long, as long as you can spell it correctly. <laughs> well, I, I was going to ask which um, sort of interest primarily predates the other. Uh, as you say, you started writing from a very, very early age. Um, some people have been playing the game from a, an inappropriately very young age as well, such as myself, five years old. I first started... Um, getting scared at the game but uh as a serious pursuit and in, in both domains um when did you start when you decide that taking up running as a profession uh was something you wanted to do and just, just to give an idea of the sort of timeline of creative investments um here when did you sort of seriously begin to pursue uh level design uh, both in doom which you cite as your favorite computer game uh and uh other games as well it's hard to say because I, I guess I want to say the um, the game design thing came first because I was uh, doing that a bit more than the writing initially. Uh, in first grade, my first my first grade teacher, Miss Foltz, uh, was encouraging us to write something every week, like a little story to turn in at the end of the week, and that that sort of showed me that you know writing could be fun. It didn't have to be about homework all the time. Um, and I started foraying into fan fiction. I think it was junior high and high school, and doing a lot of that. And um, I think I took it seriously when I, it got to the point where, um, like I think a lot of fanfic authors do, where I noticed the ratio of original content and source material uh, was, was greatly out of sync. Like, the, like this, it was mostly original stuff with only a few nods to the source material. Uh, I started to realize maybe I should start just writing original stuff because there's there's no point in having the 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 fanfic aspect of this in here because it's not even it's not even relevant anymore. All the all the new stuff I'm inventing is the, is taking this taking center stage. So, um, so I guess I want to say somewhere between high school and college when I was when I was still a young man back before they invented trains. Uh, 
Yeah, it's hard to pinpoint an exact point when I really started taking it seriously. Uh, and and it wasn't. And there was definitely like a, to- a long time between when I started taking it seriously and when I actually knew what the hell I was doing. <laughs> That'll happen. Yeah. Uh, oftentimes, people. I mean, it's um, they they choose to mentally sort of segment their or categorize. I guess that's not the right word for it, but they separate those two domains of creative investment, and and sometimes it's it's quite reciprocal, um, and you find it very easy to bounce back between one and the other. I'm trying to think of how you divide your time up here because if I look at what you've done both within and without the community, there's there's a heck of a lot on offer. And I know the people who struggle uh, claiming to invest themselves in just one area, being able to put up, say, a 45 megawatt like you have with Strange Eon. So I'm wondering how you divide up your time. How do you find the fuel to do all of that uh, and stay sane? And I could take a few tips from you. <laughs> well, um, I don't recommend being unemployed, but that's a big part of it. <laughs> Although I do have a job. Yeah, I do have a job interview next week, so that'll that'll be nice. Good luck. Uh, assuming it actually goes anywhere. Thank you. Uh, it's at a at a dog resort, so hopefully I'll get to work with puppy dogs again and and some cats. Um, but a lot of it really is uh, I just have an obsessive mentality and I'll just get sucked into the project that's nagging at me. And then after a while, I'll get burnt out and not sure where to go next. So I'll just do like Raymond Chandler, the, the famous hard-boiled detective fiction author. And uh, when I'm not sure where to where, how to advance on one project, I'll just give it a rest and go switch to another project. Uh, so to that end, um, being a writer and a game designer really helps because I can jump back and forth between two completely different mediums and never get bored with them. And uh, does it just color your uh, interest in the game in any particular way um, to the extent? Because a lot of other people will be invested uh, to a point where they may become interested in things that maybe most sane people wouldn't <laughs> wouldn't think is really worth their time. But um, are there any sort of uh, community-obsessed corners uh, that you would feel if you had more time or were less interested in writing, for example, you would be more interested in? Um, for example, community projects that are particular that um, you don't seem to join that very often. Um, Mayhem fifteen hundred, I think you took part in. I can't think of any other off the top of my head that you were yeah. part of. I joined. Uh, I joined Mayhem fifteen hundred. Uh, Mayhem Super Mayhem seventeen. Um, the first two uh, Doom Wad Roulette things, actually, which I think you started, if I remember right. Yeah, yeah. I think only um, one of those are on mid games at the moment. <laughs> yeah. And um, oh, another recent oh the the heretic upstart mapping project okay. um, yeah so those those are the community projects I partook in and both of the mayhems that I was involved in I also wrote the intermission text for um, so it was kind of fun because like I volunteered to do it for mayhem fifteen hundred and I wrote the, and he had, they put together this really funny um, sounding tune for the story bits in that that was like it's like okay this, this feels like this mod doesn't take itself seriously at all you know because like this does not suit the, the grim tone of all the mats we've been playing you know it's, it's a little bit whimsical uh and they didn't have a story for it so but it was mayhem 1500 so um i think uh, everyone was trying to find a way to work uh the number 1500 in, into the uh into their maps and i noticed that there was a lot of um there were a lot of maps that were like uh, based around ancient ancient times and castles and like the 1500s and stuff like that. Um, so I wrote this funny little time travel story to weave throughout the mod. So it would seem like whoever this whoever 
the player is playing uh, basically got roped into being a guinea pig for these for this Dr. Rubik, who's this like asshole scientist who was working on this uh, time fluctuation thing. And he was only supposed to be like like a like a brief test just to see what it does to humans. And then they pay him like a couple thousand bucks and then he'd be on his way. And what it ended up doing was throwing him through this time warp and uh, interspersing these time periods with demons and stuff. So he's running through one portal after another, trying to find the one that takes him back to his own time period so he can kick the doctor's ass for sending him on this stupid adventure in the first place. And it was a fun little writing project. Um, and then we were doing uh, May- Super Mayhem 17, and uh, I think it's Marseille was running both of these, and he contacted me and was like, hey, could you write the intermissions for this one as well? I was like, yeah, sure. So I did this really hard-boiled Mario thing about Mario being fed up with having to rescue this damn princess all the time (laughs) awesome um but yeah i don't usually join them much partly because um i don't always think i don't always have an idea of uh what i want my map to be and sometimes when i do think of something and put it and put it in there it's usually the least celebrated map in the mod so i'm like yeah i don't know maybe i'm not really cut out for this um so like i don't i don't feel like i'm i'm as good at one shot maps as i am like these more obsessive larger projects so I tend to stick to those and occasionally join a community thing if it seems like fun. Um, the Mario one especially seemed like fun because I always wanted to do some kind of Doom-related Mario thing. Um, so this, that was a great opportunity to to do something off the beaten path, as it were. Yeah, I, I find it astonishing, frankly, it's taken this long for there to be some sort of crossover like this. Uh, I know. The closest we've had was um, a, a few Skull Tag maps that were Mario-themed. Right, yeah. I think and that was really Mario. it. Yeah, yeah. Kaizo must be just on the horizon, or whatever. <laughs> I think this is definitely this is definitely the first time it wasn't a deathmatch related Mario thing because whenever they did have Mario do do maps, they were always uh, they were either deathmatch sets or standalone maps, or they were uh, little Easter eggs. Like in the Ultimate Torment and Torture Two, there was a little Easter egg secret area that was in uh, Super Mario World. <laughs> we'll talk about narrative and Doom. Uh, a little bit later. That's obviously the big talking point with you and your tie-in series. Um, yeah. Personally, I find it in the meantime uh, for other such little projects on the side, like the ones you were just talking about, doing the intermission text for those is uh, it's really liberating because you can be as stupid as you like, and then half the yeah. people will just mash their space bars, get to the next level, and uh, the ones who don't will be treated to some uh, A-grade nonsense. Uh, Fifty Shades of Grey Tall. Um, I, I'm not sure if you've read that, but I put that together in, in in more or less just a couple of minutes. I think it was demons harvesting the red strips from the Grey Tall texture in order to build a bridge to Earth. <laughs> yeah, I haven't I haven't had a chance to play Grey Tall yet. I didn't realize you wrote the intermission for that, so that's that's going to be a treat. I gotta that'll be my next mod I play. <laughs> yeah, uh, apologies in advance. Um, <laughs> No, but that's that's part of the fun aspect of it was um, you only have so much space and so many intermission screens to work with, and you have to you have to do something that fits the theme of the mod. So how do you how do you um, going at one of your one of your notes uh, you sent me was about it's like limitation breeds creativity. How do you use those those as prompts to write uh, an intermission? intermission screens and tell some kind of a story that actually uh, fits what the mod is going for. Right. How do you, um, uh, granted this is, this is also a, an investment equation for you. Um, do you really feel that you need uh, a, a creative idea like that in order to become invested in something to begin with? Or um, do you wish that you could be part of that uh, sort of troop of people who are 
with almost this automated style that they can uh, apply wherever they like to a loose idea that they don't need to um uh, they don't need to, to to feel that they need to get hooked onto with with some sort of narrative piece or whatever. I do feel that um, I wish it'd be easier for me to just jump into a project like that and make something really cool and playable. Like a lot of a lot of people in the community turn out really great maps and interesting creative maps every t- every time they join a project like that. And uh, it'd be nice to be that laid back and cool about it and just like go in and make something interesting every time rather than waiting for something to be really interesting and really grab me, especially given my ratio of decent to disappointing maps when I join in those sorts of things. Um, although the the second the second uh, Doomwad roulette that, that we did, um, I ended up recycling that map for the fifth episode of Strange Eons, and it turned out to be a much better map once I once I gave it that makeover. Uh, so I did get something out of it at least <laughs> out of a out of an initially disappointing map. Was that the giant spaceship, or am I confused? No, it was. Well, I think the first one I did was a giant spaceship, and I think the second one was the. Um, the sprawling canyon that was like it was a maze-like canyon. Oh right, yeah, that's yeah. Right. So I yeah I adapted that, that for the fifth episode of Strange Eons. That was that was I, I kind of approached as a bonus episode because um, I had um, I had a lot of standalone doom ma- doom maps that were just kind of laying around, and uh, I was mostly like known for having these map sets and not so much having individual standalone maps so i was trying to think of something to do with them like maybe put them put them together into a little wad of their own and then i thought well i could theme these as the underworld and maybe relay and make a fifth and final episode of strange eons and it'd be really cool and then that and that's why the fifth episode of strange eons is the most uh doomish in style in gameplay style because they're originally standalone doom maps that i that i tweaked and reworked and expanded upon that's good. That's very industrious. Uh, I think, yeah. particularly uh, uh, these days, you find that uh, lots of our work are uh, separated piecemeal all over the shop. And yeah. sometimes um, knowing who's done what, it's very difficult to, to understand, read up a catalog of their work. And so if you're able to take uh, work you've done for one, one thing and then um, rejig it for something else, so that uh, I think that's a very useful tool to have. Yeah, and it's it's part of my anal retentiveness, I guess, that I don't like having a bunch of these piecemeal maps kind of laying around, cluttering up the workshop. I kind of like to like put them to work and have them actually carry their weight in a in a larger thing. And um, that's that's the penultimate map in episode five of Strange Eons was interesting because it was two. Of, I think it was my two very first Doom maps that I finished and posted in the community, uh, and I married them together. So there's a big sense of person in that map where, like, you go through this insane, creepy outdoor map in Relay, and and then you finally open the door to the next part, and you go in, and it doesn't lead to the exit. It leads to another sprawling indoor map <laughs> that's a completely different environment uh, in the same setting. So then you have to run, run around that area and figure out where the exit is. Uh, and it turned out to be a pretty good um, lead-up to the, to the final epilogue boss map and the, the finale of the mod in general so i was pretty happy with how how that map turned out by marrying my first two projects and still keeping uh the cool little elements of those maps like um that's the map where you go when you're in the inside the house of dagon there's a little lab area that has the wall texture of the dead the dead marines hanging on the wall and they and they each have a shotgun at their feet or, or an AK-47, and then you go up this elevator to flip a switch and turn the lab on and the machines and stuff, 
and to make the key appear and you grab the key and when you go back down the elevator uh the three dead guys have been brought back to life and they start shooting at you and that was a neat little um map trick that i did uh without using uh acs or anything i just used old school uh doom map technology <laughs> to make it work and it was a, it was it's always a pretty cool little highlight whenever people play through that mod and they get to that part they're like oh i see what you did that's so cool so i was pretty proud of that little part of the map um a lot of, and sometimes i um i'll usually think of something like that for a do map and then that's where i'll start and i'll try to build the rest of the map around it um so I, I think that's part of my limitation as a map designer is um i can't just jump into it and do something interesting there has to be a weird little uh, centerpiece and then i just construct a map around that and uh kind of build up to that centerpiece as as a highlight uh, so it's almost, I guess I'm almost a Sandy Peterson-esque in my, in my design, because like he would always start with a big central room and then build the map off of that. I start with a weird little gimmick area and then build the map off of that. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's not a bad comparison, actually. Um, and I mean, that in the, the best possible sense, in the sense that... Well, you... I, would, I would hope my texture placement is better than Sandy's. <laughs> you know, yeah, a little, uh, a little bit more unified. He does... Um, he does have an obsession with 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 mythos as well. Um, and yeah, to... I talked to him a little bit on the the boardgamegeek.com and the private message conversation back and forth. We were just nerding out about Lovecraft and stuff. <laughs> and uh, yeah, that's great. And he, um, I, I think his approach, uh, even though at the time obviously that was less a choice and more just the tools and what he had and the fact that he had to work so bloody fast to get to to meet the deadline. But um, yeah. what he does have in common with your work beyond what you mentioned i think it's, it's a lot easier to isolate and appreciate those sort of narrative elements those little pieces that you want the player to notice because otherwise the aesthetic is quite simple yeah and especially in, in something like strange eons um uh it has a very very coherent sort of art direction i find and so those elements really do stand out quite easily if uh, you don't even need to be looking for them they sort of jump out at you uh, the music helps a lot though as well yeah I do, I do kind of crunch when I design maps too, because um, I guess my approach is sort of speed mappy, which might be part of part of the re one of many reasons why my maps aren't as super detailed as a lot of modern maps are. Which is like usually one of the first things people comment about my maps. It's like you know this is really basic detail, but you know dot dot dot. Um, and partly it's because uh, I kind of speed map them because if I overthink what I'm going to do and what the details should be, uh, I never get anywhere. So I just crank it out and then I tweak it afterward. And uh, it's a similar approach to my writing in a sense. Um, That's good. Where I just I just like don't don't dwell on it. Just get the base and art too. Like because I, I I trained in uh, gesture drawing in college, and gesture drawing is the same approach. It's like. You only whatever your subject is that you're drawing, you only have a crisp mental image of it for about 10 to 20 seconds. So you get the general form out as quickly as possible before you lose it. And then you worry about detailing it later. And um, I take a similar approach to uh, to my doom mapping, certainly, um, partly because I just don't want to be spending months and months on one map, you know. So right. I mean, most most of the maps I made for strange eons in particular, uh, I cranked out in a day. There were a couple of maps that took more than that. And then I'd go back and tweak them as I go as I was playtesting. But I made most of them in a, like in one day of doom mapping, and then they were done. That's an enviable skill. Uh, but I, mean, I, think, yeah, and, and for well, I didn't say the maps were good, so that's, keep that in mind. <laughs> well, I, I'm not sure if Fortyance discussed this with you, since I know uh, you were on his podcast on two occasions. But he, um, uh, I recall him saying at one point that he, in recent times, because he's found that he had less time to work with 
level design, um, he has specifically tried to cater or um, build a style based around having less time and doing more with less. So he's achieved very limited texture selection, um, sort of not quite, almost a sort of patch pasteurized layout. It's like Ordino, but it's kind of melted slightly because uh, it's sort of... uh, (laughs) utilized sloppiness in a very attractive way um and then he's just made a lot of lighting work for him so he's, he's really honed in on that space and and i look at some like strange eons and um it probably doesn't have the same sort of lighting because um it has other things going for it artistically that, that make things contrast well and look quite vibrant but that's definitely the impression i got as well is that you had you uh you were able to find a way to make uh, less work for you in a, in a very wholesome way so good job yeah and part of yeah, thank you. I appreciate that someone noticed that and didn't think it made them look shoddy. Uh, just because, yeah, a lot of a lot of people in the community, you know, like, are working a lot of time and they have real lives and they don't really have a lot of time to de- to devote to it. So, uh, speedy craftsmanship is really kind of a must. And uh, back to the uh, limitation breed creativity thing that uh, you you mentioned before. Um, the lim- limiting your the amount of time you have to work on it and uh, the texture use and such really helps really helps a map in a lot of ways um, because like with the the a lot of the Sandy Peterson maps you just kind of went nuts with the texture and even if the structure of the maps were, were always really interesting uh, they tended they tend they were often pretty ugly uh, because he seemed like he was using it, trying to use every texture on every map um, but then whenever they adapted uh, the Sandy Peterson maps. Uh, spawning vats is an example I used, and I, and I did talk to 40 Ounce about this on one of the podcasts. Um, you take spawning vats, the original version of spawning vats in original Doom, is really an ugly mess of every texture in the game, and they all clash, and they don't really look like they belong together at all. Um, but then you, when they took it and they adapted it into, say, the 32X version of Doom, where they only really had, like, they had fewer textures to choose from in, in, in the home ports back then than Heretic has now, like on the PC, you know, there's just, just like seven different wall textures that they were that they were able to use in the port versions of the game. Uh, that did nothing but help spawning vats look better as a map because they didn't have as many textures to choose from. Uh, so the minimalist texture choice for the console adaptations of that map makes it look more professional and not as patchwork. Yeah. Yeah. So a lot of t- a lot of times the um, the the limitation limit limiting what you have to work with absolutely helps. That's why the the little um, the community projects always turn out to, always have such interesting maps to choose from. Like, it's a, it's always a mixed bag, but there's always some really cool and interesting stuff in there because they're basically like uh, indie game jams. And I've partaken in a lot of indie game jams where a bunch of gamers get together and the guy hosting the jam is like. Uh, if he, I've seen both examples of this too. Like I've seen one where the guy was like, "Make me a game in 48 hours. It can be any game you want with any engine you want." Well, now your options are limitless. You don't even know where to start. <laughs> you know, you don't know what you're going to do, um, and you can't use your time effectively because you have no idea what you're doing. Right. Um, but you join a game jam where they say, "Hey, you have 48 hours to make me a game, and you have to make the game based on an example of really bad bo- game, video game box art from the 8-bit era." Now, some, some, which that was actually a jam that I created for GameJolt.com, and they ran it for a couple of years. Uh, and amazing games came out of that concept because of the limitation, because it was such a specific limitation that they had to work with. That and the time limit. So, yeah, you make, uh, and that's that's an important part of uh, to remember about video game history. It's like there, you notice there was such a wider variety of unique games back in the days of 
the arcades and the Apple II computer and stuff like Castle Wolfenstein, Joust, etc. Centipede. Uh, none of the no two games like were alike until like barring all the clones that came out for the home computers of all the popular games. But there were so many like very distinct, unique games uh, because of their massive technological limitations they had so little to work with they had no choice but to be as creative as possible to make the most outrageous game that no one had ever seen before in order to compete with the other games in order to make some use out of the shoddy computer engines that they had to work with at the time versus nowadays where it's like basically every AAA game is system shock 2 you know they have the budget and the resources to make absolutely whatever they want and there's no limitations whatsoever barring common sense and, Do you uh, think uh, there's, there's, uh, for this reason, it partially explains why there's this, an almost resurgent interest in, in the retro? Is it this, yeah, absolutely. Is it elements of the imagination that have been removed because everything is perfectly rendered? Everything's perfectly rendered, and there's there's no limitations to what people can do now. You know, like versus that, and I think I think it started with like the in the the first surge of the indie game movement, because uh, indie games went back to gaming history's roots, and they started. Uh, making making games that were more unique and interesting and off the beaten path and they're still doing it now you know and we end up with games like minecraft which are like hugely insanely popular like the guy notch is a billionaire now because of because of this game and no one had done anything like it before and it was really it, and it was a combination of elements from really old retro games you know and, and it had a very clear idea of what it wanted to be and it was very unique and distinct and look at all the clones that came out of that you know, it's 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 important for game designers to impose some kind of limitation on themselves if it's not imposed on them from an outside source. So they so it can force them to do something unusual uh, and not just make the same game that everybody else is making. And it's not to say that like like you know the cookie cutter games aren't necessarily fun. Some are more fun than others. Um, but when the market gets oversaturated, it's it just gets boring. And right. it wasn't it wasn't as much a problem back in the day as it is now. It's like there used to be two dozen different genres of video games versus now where there are like what three it's like mmorpgs uh first person shooters and candy crush <laughs> puzzle games have seen a bit of a resurgence uh for yeah. that i'm not really sure what's behind that but uh i imagine it's a similar sentiment <laughs> people so, who aren't good at the other two games <laughs> <laughs> uh, i know the word purist is kind of a kind of stigmatic but um I, especially in the wake of recent threads that have been, uh, I think a few people have been asking why isn't it that we don't use UDMF a lot more often uh, at format and sort of work towards um, using those more advanced source ports and the like. And I imagine it's a similar sentiment when it comes to people um, erring on the side of um, Boom and Vanilla Works is that there is, it, it does because it, it can't, um, it's, it's quite representationalist in, in abstract in the way that that it, it it's creative, and I think that's a that's a domain that uh, a lot of today's generation are touching base with. So it's not really going anywhere. Yeah, and there's because like there's there's a place for just classic old school vanilla maps. Because sometimes you just want to play something that feels like Doom when it was released in 1993, uh, and other times you want to play something more advanced, and it takes advantage of all the the lack of limitations in the newer source parts and whatnot but it just it just kind of depends what you're in the mood for uh but even then like um i would try to have i try to limit myself whenever i because a lot of most of my uh mods use udmf format but i would even then i would try to force a limitation on my vision it was like 
Like I, I know exactly what I'm going for. I'm not going to do this. I'm not going to do this. I'm going to do strictly this. Like you notice, I don't, I don't use any uh, 3D objects. I don't, I don't think I've used any 3D objects in any of my mods because I wanted them to have kind of a 1995 feel to them. Oh right, um, that's just that's just a sky floor. They're not floating rocks. In episode one of um, Strange Ems, is it? It's just yeah, yeah. So that's sky. yeah, that's very basic sky sky floor and ceiling stuff, you know, but it, it, it looks like a 93, 94 equivalent to floating islands in the nether and whatnot. Right. Um, but I wouldn't do like over under 3D objects and stuff like that. And the bridges, the, the bridges in late, even my later, more advanced mods uh, like uh, Project Dinary are, uh, I would make the old school way with walkable middle textures, you know, because I didn't, I didn't want them to, to use every, every, just because all the, all the features of UDMF and GZDoom are available to me. That doesn't mean I want to use every single one of them, which is a flaw in a lot of uh, advanced mods and ZDoom mods and stuff is they try to use everything and make it like this big, beautiful spectacle. And it just, you don't need to do that, you know? <laughs> and uh, a, a lot of game design. Um, uh, and I, I wouldn't even call myself a video game purist because I can enjoy a modern game as much as an older game. If it, if it, if it floats my boat, like I love Left 4 Dead, I can I can play that all day long if I had enough people to play it with, and if I had a computer that would run Left 4 Dead 2 better, and if the characters in Left 4 Dead 2 were actually likable, like the Left 4 Dead 1 characters, but that's another can of worms. Um, but um, there's there's still something to be said about limiting limiting the scope of your game. Um, one of the big issues I had with Doom 3, beside one of the many issues I had, besides the fact that it it was basically like a Quake 4 haunted house attraction. <laughs> um, was um, you had such a huge arsenal, and maybe only three weapons were worth a shit. One of them was the flashlight. <laughs> it's like you could club guys, one hit kill guys with the flashlight. You had the chain gun, and you had, I guess, the plasma gun, and the rest of those guns were fucking useless. And Plastic pop guns, yeah. Yeah, just like have more plastic, little plastic pop guns and potato guns, and there's no reason for them to be there because they contribute nothing to the arsenal, you know. And that's and that's an example of what I'm talking about, where it's like you force a limitation on yourself. So I, whenever I did a mod, I'd always try to only include weapons that were bringing something that the other weapons weren't to bring into the table. And, and so that's and that's tougher than it tougher than it than it sounds sometimes. Yeah, uh, there's an inherent simplicity to the original game i think that yeah. uh we'll never really lose sight of that even as we move forward so that's that's yeah. fairly reassuring and even, and even original doom uh, could have could have restricted itself just a bit more and had a more useful arsenal like um uh, i don't know they could have done something with the pistol to make it more useful or just uh left it out all together and started you with the shotgun right well they, they corrected that in quake didn't they although the yeah. quake shotgun is kind of the doom's pistol <laughs> <laughs> It's about as fast. Just fires like three more pellets. Yeah, they just shifted the range. Um, but then, but then the quake quake had the had a similar issue where um, half the games were half the guns were cookie cutter, like slightly tougher versions of the previous gun in the in, in the in the gun in the previous slot. It's like shotgun, super shotgun, nails, nail guns, super nail guns. Like you, you don't need that. Just <laughs> I guess start them with the super shotgun, and then make the regular nail gun a little a little beefier, and then the rest of the guns were fine. You know, so, you were going to um, you did mention Heretic, and I was going to 
I was going to lay into you for bloody for hacks, which I consider to be quite appalling. But may, but um, <laughs> I I agree that hacks is quite appalling. And well, uh, that's that's interesting that you say that because uh, I was just thinking now after after this discussion, um, most people, vast majority of people, consider both of those games, um, Heretics, slightly further up the ladder, but to be inferior to to Doom, of course. Um, and yet, most of the people I've spoken with who have invested some time in one of Heretic or Hexen or something. Hexen, not so much, because it, it's not really reskinned Doom. It's a different game entirely. But yeah. some would argue that Heretic is just basically like a TC that's disguised as a commercial product. Or is a Pretty commercial much. Product. Yeah. Um, but you were interested in that, you say, for, for Hump, Heretic Upstart Mapping Project. So was there an interest in, to, the, to some extent, that limitation sort of philosophy of it being inferior, but maybe we can make this work? There was. Um... Because the main issue I have with with Heretic was just was just two issues really was the enemies the even the most common enemies have too much health because like in Doom you can run and gun you can one one shot kill with like or you could kill most all pretty much all the common monsters with one or two shots from any of the standard weapons and that makes the gameplay fast and and bloody and breakneck and really engaging and you can't do that in heretic because everything takes like three to five shots to kill with any weapons like and flies away from me when you do it yeah you could even you could even shoot a friggin gargoyle with the phoenix rod and you'll probably one hit kill it but you might not (laughs) and it's ridiculous that and so like every single encounter in that game is a stop and go is stop and go tedium because it takes so long to kill everything in the room and you're basically like avoiding everything in which case, why do you have this big arsenal of weapons if you're never going to use them? Because it's so tedious. The other issue being such a limit a limit on uh, decorations and te- textures. Um, so the, the maps were almost never very visually interesting. The upsides to the game was that it did have a unique atmosphere and look to it and feel to it. And the levels are really incredibly well designed. Like, it's like But it's, it's just a shame that I had to make uh, a weapon and monster replacement mod uh, that with... Uh, more fun weapon, more fun punchier weapons and cooler monsters that were easier to kill so that I could actually play through the game and enjoy myself because I cannot play through, I cannot play vanilla, vanilla heretic maps. It's too damn tedious. I just cannot stand it. Um, so then heretic upstart mapping project, I, I kind of challenged myself. Okay. You have so many issues with this game. Uh, can you make a map for this project that you would enjoy playing? And what I ended up doing was having a was making a monster like puzzle map, and that made Heretic fun and for for me like vanilla Heretic, because uh, you didn't run into a huge amount of monsters. And even then, I started you with the Dragon Claw, so you at least had punch your firepower in the beginning, um, and that that worked out better. And it ended up being a pretty. I think it was kind of a standout map because it wasn't a straightforward uh, heretic map. Because there, there were some very cool heretic maps uh, contributed to that to that map sense. Like some, I'm like even playing vanilla heretic, I was really fond of them, which was which is really hard to do. So kudos, guys. You know, you got me interested <laughs> in playing those maps all the way through to the end, despite my issues with the with the game. Um, but I think I was the only one who made this weird puzzle map that didn't really stick to the vanilla format. <laughs> and the guy who uh, was running hump was like uh, you know what? i'm gonna go ahead and leave these effects in there because i don't think the map works without them so it's like sorry i broke the map set and made it like not vanilla exclusive but uh people seem to like it 
even though they couldn't figure out how to get the Phoenix Rod puzzle, because <laughs> every time somebody got to that room, they would push, they, they, they couldn't figure it out, and I was just shaking my head, like, uh, maybe I made this too hard, or I don't know. It probably doesn't really fit uh, a standard run-and-gun map set, because it's like halfway through, and they're all suddenly, like, you're doing all these run-and-gun heretic maps, and suddenly there's this weird puzzle map, and you don't really know how to approach it, so I don't know, maybe it was a bad call. <laughs> it probably would have been better as a standalone. I think even within the realm of Vanilla Heretic, there is a lot of space to uh, for the puzzles to work out. I know, um, I think Sid Obsidian, he did something special with teleporting, uh, exploding pods, which of course replaced. Oh God, yeah, that yeah. <laughs> that was a nightmare. <laughs> I I'd seen I've seen I wonder if he also made um another Heretic map map I played that used some sort of trick with teleporting explosive pods. Uh, well, the one I'm thinking of was in Realm of Pythoris. I think it was the. Sick I think one. yeah, that's that's. Um, I think I think we're thinking of the same. Was that the same guy who made the um, the Bastion of the Dark Deity? Was that like a prequel uh, Bastion of the Dark Deity or something? I, I don't I can't remember who made so. that. Uh, I, I don't know offhand. Um, but the only reason I remember that map is not actually the barrels. It's because it's the one map of the project that refused to use custom music that I was composing for. So. Uh, <laughs> God damn it, Sid. <laughs> Did you compose the music for my map to replace that? Uh, I don't know where the the because unusually for that for um, for that project, I sort of just composed music and then I think Egregor just assigned them wherever um, he okay. liked. So yeah, so I'm not sure. I, I, I just assume that he composed the the replacement music for mine because I used a little music clip from uh, the cockroach game Bad Mojo because it had this weird kind of vibe <laughs> that suited the weird vibe of the map I made. And uh, somebody, I don't know if it was you or him, uh, just threw together a MIDI version of it that was a little more expanded. Oh, right. That wasn't me then, no. Absolutely not. Okay, so... Yeah, so he, 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 probably, he probably threw that together in like a couple of hours just so that it would, it would uh, better suit it because it was, it was a longer, a longer uh, track than what I picked. For, better suited to a, a, a really long map because it takes, it takes a while. If you don't know how to solve the map, it takes you a long time to go through it. And even if you know what you're doing, it's still pretty lengthy. So it's better to have something a little more complex than what I chose for it. But uh, I wasn't sure if it was him or you because I didn't realize you composed uh, music for, for Doom Mods. Yeah, well, there's there's been a. I know this isn't about me, but I will take my time to shine here. There's uh, a <laughs> Pinchy's released a little something, a little something. It's like fifty maps. It's called um the Alfonso. Yeah, and, um, <laughs> I think I've seen I, that term dropped somewhere in the forums. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's used a bunch of my speed minis that I actually didn't release intending for use, which is uh, it's been a bit strange. They were sort of experimental thirty minute scrapbook compositions um that were just posted for posterity and a sort of insight into the 30 minute process and then he went ahead and used all 50 of them so that was that was a strange mix of despair and gratitude uh, <laughs> so that's why he called it the alfonso because he just used your music in it yeah yeah it's, <laughs> it's something special um that's why that's why i love about the the doom community like they'll have just these little it's like, why did you call it this? Well, funny you asked that. It's a weird little story. Just these weird little in-jokes kind of woven through these projects that, it's, I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so what's your excuse for hacks then? I mean, heretic I can understand. Uh, hacks is a bridge too far. Hacks, oh God, I, I can't explain hacks. It had some cool ideas to it. I like the idea of like a Japanese cyberpunk Doom mod. Um 
not as a commercial thing and definitely not an unfinished commercial thing. Like the game doesn't even have an ending. It ends with a to be continued, which is the most egregious sin it commits. It's like you, you don't end your game with a to be continued. It's You're going like, to have to renege on that promise. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the mostly hacks, the, the most use I ever got out of hacks was like cannibalizing some resources, some sounds here for some of the mods I did to make some guns sound punchier or something. Hmm. Um, Disappointed but, to hear you back out of this one. Yeah, I mean, I mean, that's that's I'm tr- I'm trying to trying to like shed shed some positive light on it and like you know that's that's the best I could do. I think the biggest the biggest problem with it was that it was it re- literally was half baked. Like they rushed to finish it to get out on the market. I think because Quake had just come out. Yeah. Um, but they really should have just taken the time to like balance things out and like make it stand out more because like strife strife is a pretty cool doom engine based game that came out when doom engine games weren't really a thing anymore and uh in spite of its flaws it's still pretty cool and stands out and has a very distinct style about it um you can't really say the same for hacks it looks shoddy and half-baked and it looks it 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 makes me think of that mars 3d game that kind of surfaced recently uh, that's, that's, I, I don't know if that was made with Doom or Duke Nukem. I think it was based on the Duke Nukem uh, build engine, but yeah, really it's, cool, it's, right? it's got the same kind of feel to it, like this weird foreign Doom knockoff uh, that was made in Brazil or something. I don't know. <laughs> uh, and that's, that's what Hacks kind of feels like, it looks like, and plays like. And I really was not happy with it from start to finish. I, you really, I, I really have to struggle to find good things about it. And for a while, I was trying to... I did try to make... Uh, uh, a small hacks mod just to kind of like take the best aspects of it and try to do something with it. And even I couldn't manage it. I couldn't see it through. <laughs> well, all is forgiven, I guess, uh, unless <laughs> you suddenly take an interest in checks quest, then we'll have to renew this discussion all over again. That's a, <laughs> anything that comes from the cereal box. I mean, frankly not worth I mean, on. I, don't, I mean, it, it, it has to be said that like checks quest does, it did manage to get a little bit of a following for itself and did, managed to boost profits for checks by using this really cool game engine to make this weird little spin-off thing that other serial companies had never done before. Uh, and that too has kind of a distinct look to it. Just not a whole lot of replay value to it, honestly. <laughs> I don't know, a little, a little too tame for me as, as, as much as I like the, the visual aesthetic. Well, maybe, uh, maybe that computer game will do for checks. Uh, what Project Anaha will do for your book. <laughs> yeah, it hasn't, it hasn't yet. <laughs> <laughs> well, look, just before we get to that, because um, I'm surprised the amount of discussion we've got out of this supposedly one opening section of this podcast. Um, <laughs> uh, well, I think, I think we're kind of mixing mixing and matching some of the other we sections. Are, I know, it is good. Cover, it, so. is good. Um, it, it would actually be remiss of me to let you go uh, from this point without laying into or otherwise praising the hell out of the Doom novels, which I assume you've read. Uh, unfortunately, I haven't yet. And um, I, I, was never, I was never able to get, a, get my hands on a copy, but um, I've had renewed recent interest in wanting to read at least the first one because I was listening to this podcast, uh, and I hope I'm not saying the name wrong, called I Don't Even Own a Television. And what they do is, yeah, they have the host and the co-host and a guest and a guest guy on the show, a guest star, and um, they'll bring him on the podcast. Well, beforehand, like I think a week beforehand or so, they'll all talk to each other and they'll agree on a book that they want to read and talk about on the post, on the on the episode on the next episode. And then when they meet up for the podcast, they've all read the book, 
and uh, they divide the podcast into different sections where they do various activities related to the book. Like they'll open with a general summary and a general a discussion of their general impressions of the book they read. Uh, and then they'll have a quick break and they'll come back and they'll talk about favorite passages from the book and why they got a kick out of them one way or another. And then they'll take another break and they'll come back and they'll um, they'll do dramatic readings where um, one of them one of them uh, flips. I, I think it's like a dramatic reading um, roulette thing where one of them goes, OK, my turn. And they start flipping through the book, rap, like just flipping through the book like it's a flip book until one of the guys says stop. And he stops on that on whatever page he's on and he chooses a random part of that page and just does a dramatic reading of it. And then they respond to it. And they do a lot of stuff like, and it's really, it's really fun and engaging. And uh, they did an episode where the, the book of the day was the first Dune novel. <laughs> no kidding. I, I had no idea what was in these books. Like I had not been exposed to the content of these books until I listened to this podcast. And oh my God, it's, it's wonderful. It's the cheesiest, stupidest crap. Like I did not know it was almost on the same level as the Dune comic in sheer ridiculousness. Um, exactly. So now I'm, yeah, so now now I'm anxious to just get the books and read them. And, and then I come to find out like that it, it even it doesn't even start to get crazy until the second book where like a, a group of like Mormon space colonists get together with the team up with the heroes and try to stop the demons or, or something. And then it turns into this like Mormon space horror adventure. <laughs> like, I mean, it sounds crazy, but then until then you realize that the same things happened on the on the second. No, the, the entire series of The Expanse. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so I've been I I have been eager to actually read them now, but I never had a chance to actually uh, read them. I never had my, I I didn't read them when I was uh, a kid back when they came out. Uh, although I did read a really bad Mega Man two novel, and I refused to touch the Doom three novels because I loathed I I have issues with Doom three, but I loathed the story. It was like the most cliched, boring bullshit ever. Especially since because um, I was inspired to write my Doom books. Uh, because I loved the backstory for the original Doom so much. I thought it was a great premise. And Doom 3 does not have a great premise. It's like every generic sci-fi horror movie I've ever heard of. And there's it doesn't bring anything new and interesting to the table. And and like I said, it's basically a quick for a haunted house attraction at a carnival anyway. <laughs> that's, um, that's actually really interesting. Um, because I, So you're saying that your, your impression of the game... To some extent, colors your desire to actually read a book on it. But, but well, it's it's because the 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 hack who wrote the story for Doom Three also wrote the Doom Three novels. And I was like, why would I read a novelization of a book of a game that has a terrible, boring, cliched story if the books are written by the same guy who wrote this terrible, boring, cliched story? There's no reason for me to touch this. I'm not even going to bother with it. I would read the original Doom novels just for the sheer ridiculousness of what's going on in them, even if it even if they are just like like endless slogs of just shooting shooting monsters and like be, basically being a game facts walkthrough of the game with some weird little like 13 year old angst bullshit thrown in and outrageous ideas like space mormons um you know at least there's some <laughs> at least there's something interesting there you know it's like no, it's like nobody in their right mind would put this in a book so of course these guys put it in their books and you know that that makes me want to read it there's nothing about the doom doom 3 story makes me want to read books based on it i mean i'm Sure, the whole space woman's uh, deal was more or less a nod towards anything. It's at least the main, yeah. The main problem, the the biggest problem that Doom Three had, and I think everyone will agree with me, is its utter lack of space Mormons. <laughs> let's let's just jump straight into Inaha. We've we spent uh, I think a good fifty minutes here on the on the lead up to it. Um, <laughs> this is the, you know it's good, and we got a lot of work in. Um, mm. 
But I like to pick your brain about narrative and Zoom, really, because a lot of people don't. Um, as we say, we actually celebrate to some extent its ridiculousness, and we like to, we like to work on that. Um, but to the extent that you're doing what you're doing here, which is creating a tie-in series, how that translates into a game, what sacrifices need to be made, is is really what I like uh, to hear you talk about. But just before that, uh, tell me about why you made the decision to create a tie-in series like this. Um, well, uh, it seemed to work for Chex Quest, of course. <laughs> Um, but, uh, the big thing about when you're publishing or self-publishing a book is, uh, you're the only one who's going to promote it because even if you're published through a traditional, uh, book publishing house, they have the means and the resources to promote their authors, but they don't use it. They'll mention you in their catalog. They'll announce when your book is at and that's it. You know, then they'll forget you, forget all about you and to announce like when the other new books are coming out and, Basically, every, it's all up to you to like generate interest and get people's t- attention so that they notice the book that you're doing. And that's the most difficult part of being a, ri- being a writer professionally that nobody talks about. You can count the number of authors who can make a living off of their writing alone on one hand. Right, because you know, like no one says you need to be King, a businessman on the side. Yeah, you have, you have to – in order to be a successful writer, you have to have skills in marketing – which are not inherent to the kinds of people, to the personality type that becomes a writer. <laughs> you know, you're like a weird shut-in who doesn't connect with people, and you're expected to be able to connect with people and sell them on things. You can't be a salesman if you're a writer. That's just not this. They're two polar opposite personality types. So somehow you got to find a way to make that work. So uh, it, uh, and the interesting thing about the Winter Agent Juno series uh, that I that I've been writing is uh, it's always kind of been a multimedia project from from its inception. Uh, whenever I was doing a writing project, trying to develop the characters and the story and the setting into something that was malleable, something I could actually work with and and like write interesting stories in, um, I was also developing game versions of it. And some and occasionally I dabbled with like a graphic novel idea, but the, it wasn't working because the story was too there was too it was too big and it, too big in scope and it didn't really have focus and it just wasn't working. Um, so I, mostly it's been going back and forth between a narrative project and a video game project and. Um, if a person is a writer and a game designer, uh, that really is the best thing they could possibly do: is approach their sort, whatever their project is, from both of those um, both of those mediums, because they will feed each other. Like you'll you'll think of things for a video game ad- version that you wouldn't think of for the story version, and vice versa, because you're approaching them from completely different angles and completely different mediums. Um, right. So now. Um, the the big the big sacrifice for uh, adapting the book into a game is uh, into a into a game like Doom, which is very action oriented, is uh, the loss of narrative and um, character stuff, uh, because there's very limited story story telling abilities uh, in Doom, um, outside of like uh, having those annoying little Z Doom pop up dialogue boxes and halting the action, right, right. or it's, you know stuff like that, or it's like using camera work to do cutscenes. Um, I had like a little briefing sequence in the Operation Body Count mod I've been toying with. You do something like that, um, or doing what they did with Unloved, where there is no actual story per se, except through the level design. It's right. like you, 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 the story unfolds about your character and his psychological issues and what's happened in his life through the, the details in the level in the level design, which is brilliant. And it's 
the very portal approach because portal did the same thing there's a lot of the story was told through your discoveries in the map itself not through like interacting with characters you know so you can infer the story for yourself um but that's difficult to do when you like have this novel like a dystopian adventure novel set during nuclear winter with lots of colorful characters and then you're adapting it to a very strictly action-oriented game with very little story elements right yeah i i can do little better than than to repeat what you just said uh and took the words out of my mouth basically that um you know we we Oftentimes, I find myself on a stream with Tarnsman. You may have heard of him. He's um, um, he's a businessman himself slash Doom enthusiast and uh, an accomplished level designer, and he loves to blab with the best of them. <laughs> and whenever we talk about narrative in Doom, we always mean specifically that, rather the suggestiveness through level design as opposed to text or something. But when we played, yeah. I think it was Monochrome Mapping Project, in which uh, you had um, you could only use textures of one or two colors um people would resort to drawing arrows on the ground to tell you what was what for example or um um when, when, what we were actually looking for is certain doors to be to be lit up for example to indicate where switches were that's not precisely what i mean but, but rather than spelling it out in dialogue um yeah that's a there's a certain narrative aspect in game design like that um being how to guide the player through the level and indicate what they're supposed to do next without like spelling it out in a fucking tutorial that you can't skip and is super tedious and right right hand holding and patronizing but translating from a book you're absolutely correct that the best you can get out of this is you can loose the player's imagination so that he yeah. he can or she can imagine what is what is suggested here and what's being told you know yeah so my, my options yeah. yeah my options were to um focus on the action and my, my options were either to like do like a lot of bad Zidu mods do and just like drop cutscene after cutscene on you uh, or adapt it to what the game is to adapt it to the game's strengths make it an action game and what little story is there is very much in the style of the books and uh, that's the most important thing that I've I've learned about adaptation from doing it myself with fan fiction and game spin-off projects because I made fan games of various weird properties and such here and there um, like the the stop motion monster movie Valley of Guanji, I made this cool little Atari style arcade game based on it. Um, but um, so, and and there's a, there's there's a trick that I learned to uh, making a good adaptation that I, that I've learned through doing it myself and seeing other people do it and seeing who did it well and and, and why it worked and who did it badly. Uh, an example, uh, an arguable example of a good uh, adaptation is the first Mortal Kombat movie. It's a terrible movie. It's laughably bad, but it's a cheesy, chop socky Hong Kong movie. Uh, an ad ad adapted from an arcade game that was a love letter to cheesy kung fu, chop socky Hong Kong movies. You know, so th that's the right approach to take. Whatever you're right. adapting, you look at the medium you're adapting it to. You find what the best genre it is, that it possible is that matches. Find the best possible genre to match the sort the the material that you're adapting, and then that's really it. Kind of adapts itself once you once you approach it from the right angle. So they were right to take this kung fu movie tribute video game and adapt it into a kung fu movie, like the, the same kind of pretty much the same kind of kung fu movie that it was that it was basically in tribute to. Bad example is Super Mario Brothers movie, where these <laughs> this. These pretentious asshole hipster douchebag married couple uh, just made whatever the hell they wanted and just threw in these little nods to the source material for the fans. And it's 
if it was just its own thing, it would probably be like a little, a weird little cult film, like the repo man or something, or, um, Buckaroo Banzai adventures across the eighth dimension, you know? Um, but because it's supposed to be a Mario adaptation, it's a huge failure because it's not super Mario brothers. And there's so many arguments like AVGN and other people on the internet are trying to stand up for the movie and say, it's like, nobody knew how to adapt something like this. It's, like, it's not difficult to know how to adapt something like that. They were already adapting it. Super Mario brothers video games into comic books before that movie came out at the very least they could have adapted the comic books into a movie you know right um but if to, a proper way a proper super mario brothers movie adaptation if they tried it again would be a cartoonier version of john carter of mars you ever read, read those books no but i did uh, i did i didn't watch the film certainly because mark Kermode suggested that i bloody well shouldn't so i stayed away from that oh <laughs> uh, yeah that's the problem with the movie was was badly badly marketed it's actually a really great fascinating and fun movie with a really rich environment that really steals the show which is what the book does like the main the main attraction of the original uh john carter of mars book is mars itself and what it's like to live there what the environment's like what kind of creatures and people inhabit it and it's fascinating and it has this very distinct visual style to it and the marketing was so bad it just didn't sell that it sold it as a, yet another generic sci-fi fantasy film so nobody saw it if more people saw it, I think it would have been a franchise because it's it's actually a really good movie and it's really fun, and it's it's basically the exact same premise as Super Mario Brothers, <laughs> or rather, Super Mario Brothers is the exact same premise as the John Carter of Mars book series, um, just like a weird like pipe smoking acid trip version of it. You know, it's like this guy from Earth gets sucked into another dimension where gravity is different for him, so he can leap really high and do amazing feats of physical feats, and he has to fight. These these alien weirdos to save uh, to save a babetastic princess from another dimension, you know, and and he runs into all kinds of weird vegetables and creatures and indigenous life forms along the way. You know, I mean, it's that's that's all you have to do. It's just like take a John Carter of Mars approach and just make it make it more surreal. <clears throat> so where are the studios falling apart here? Because it's surprisingly, particularly now, where you have this retro wave. Uh, where these interests in these these age-old games are coming back. Um, and, I mean, the obligation some studios appear to have in, in sort of adding elements or enhancing a story so that it appeals to a wider market rather than sort of just relying on and trusting in that tongue-in-cheek uh, what you would get out of a story if it's simply focused on the, sort of the roots of the game without expanding it necessarily. And there's just not that level of, of confidence that it will reap rewards. I mean, do you have a theory as to why uh, video, the video game to film industry has just been such a failure, <laughs> by and large, like that? I do actually, um, and I don't think it's just a problem with um, video game movie adaptations. It's um, it's a it's a problem with a lot of creative projects where um, they try to please everybody. Um, and they won't take a risk on something. Um, we've seen two examples of it in the video game industry in the recent past. Um, and I, I written, I've written, I, I wrote a, I wrote the review and retrospective articles about the Blood series uh, for Hardcore Gaming 101 earlier this year. Right. It's Assassin's and, Creed, uh, one of them, by the way. Yeah, uh, well, I imagine it is. But I, I talked about it. Uh, I talked about the same the same topic uh, relating to video games and uh, sequels and revivals and reboots and stuff. Um, the examples I used were 
um, when I when I got to the blood two section of the article, that's when I brought it up <clears throat> because blood two. Um, I, I don't know if you played both blood and and blood two, the chosen. Uh, I've played the first. Okay, so then you know how amazing the original blood was <laughs> because it's a very distinct atmosphere and visual style. Uh, it's a lot of fun, a great level design. And uh, it's really no, there was really no other shooter like it, and there still isn't. It's still very this very distinct marriage of um, Evil Dead and H.P. Lovecraft and other weird horror things to kind of create this very unique unique experience. Then they made Blood Two: The Chosen, and when they were making that, um, they tried to appease uh, they tried to appease the fans. And they got directly involved in the fan forums for Blood and said, hey, what do you guys want to see in a Blood sequel? So they got direct fan feedback, which on paper seems like a great idea. You know, you ask the fans, what was it you loved about the original Blood games? And we'll try and, and we will incorporate that into the sequel and make sure we give you the sequel that you right. hoped for. Yeah, that, that, that seems like a hint as, as to what their yeah, operandi is there, that they're seeking what to shoehorn. Horn in. <laughs> well, it's not, it's not just that. It's like first, first of all, the people, the people who are who, who are making the sequel have to understand the original game in the first place and understand what was successful about it. And it is important to understand what it is the fans love about the game because they're the guaranteed sales. You make a sequel to the game that they really love, and if it's even remotely like the original, they're going to be they're probably going to be pretty happy. At least it'll, it'll, you'll at least have a big enough buyer base that they'll word of mouth and get other people to try it out. The problem is they also try to appease to the lowest common denominator at the same time. And you, if when you try to when you try to please everyone, you end up pleasing no one. And this has been proven in the video game industry. I don't know how many times. Blood to the Chosen is a perfect example of it. Never mind the fact that they rushed it uh, on top of everything else. And the engine is so buggy that I was lucky. I, I was lucky I could even get the game to run every time I ran that damn game. And I'm pretty sure everyone else had the same problem. Um, they ended up with this bland corridor shooter where you're running around in the same the same damn office buildings and alleyways and lackluster locales fighting the most generic nondescript enemies with the most generic nondescript weapons possible. It's the polar opposite of blood. Like you could describe anything in blood with excruciating detail because everything about it is so distinct. Like every gun brought something unique to the table. All the monsters had unique personalities and, and looks to them and they had distinct behaviors. There are so many distinct locations. You know, you, you shoot it out in an opera house, on a moving train, in a giant sp icy spider lair, uh, in a train yard, in a, a department store or two, forgotten mines, hideous cult temples, you know, all kinds of cool stuff. And you can't describe any of the environments in Blood 2 The Chosen like that. You can't describe anything in that game with that amount of clarity because it's so generic and nondescript. Because they tried to please everybody and ended up pleasing nobody. A few years later, they tried to revive the Splatterhouse franchise. They did the exact same technique, the exact same thing to the letter. They joined the forums. They were like, hey, fans of Splatterhouse, do you want, what do you want to see in a, in a Splatterhouse reboot? But also tried to appease the lowest common denominator. As a result, they, had this, they made this disaster of a game that was so bad, uh, Namco Japan said, Namco America is never touching this franchise again, and they just buried it forever. There will never be another Splatterhouse game because these guys killed it. Because they used the same technique that Monolith used for Blood 2. Because nobody learns from history, apparently. <laughs> I think it was Kurt Vonnegut uh, who said... Well, actually, I do know it was Kurt Vonnegut because I have his bloody quote page open here. Because I was fearful I, might, <laughs> fearful I might forget it. But he said, right to please just one person. If you open a window and make love to the world, so to speak, your story will get pneumonia. 
And I've actually, <laughs> I've held that to heart, and I think it's applicable here. Yeah, that's um, a good way to put it. Because mm. you can't you, you can't please everyone, because you're just going to end up with this generic mush that just pisses everybody off. And and you'll have a handful of purists who try to make excuse excuses for the game, but they're just, but the the sensible people aren't going to have it because they're going to know these guys screwed up. You know they they weren't they didn't really care what we thought. They mostly cared about the bottom dollar, and they just shoveled this crap game out that now is a huge failure and basically killed the franchise. And in both of those cases, it killed the franchise. You'll good luck convincing either of those corp, corporate CEOs of those game companies to ever to ever bring those franchises back because they'll they'll look at the sales figures and realize what a flop the the sequel or the reboot was, and they'll be like, nope. I think we may need to have you on again for a second podcast to discuss this in particular <laughs> and just forgo everything doom. Uh, it's yeah. very interesting. I just, just it, it, it just pisses me off so much. Laziness and pandering and just not being afraid to take any amount of risk to make something stand out because they they care more they they care more about the profit margin than they do about like making something with lasting power that people are actually going to want to play. And they just don't pay attention to what happened before. You know, they don't pay attention to their own industry to learn from it. The same thing with the movie industry too. That's part of the problem. The video game industry is the movie industry. Now they make the same mistakes. Yeah. I don't know. It's just, I could, I could go on about it for hours. It pisses well, me off we're, so much. we're happy to have your pissed off persona here at Doom Radio. <laughs> we haven't had enough of that in recent times, not least of all because we haven't had Doom Radio full stop. So, <laughs> cheers. Well, yeah, that, that helps. <laughs> That'll happen. But uh, just uh, not quite wrapping up Project Ironhide just yet, since uh, we've kind of got uh, uh, sidetracked there in a good way. Um, I'm returning specifically to this narrative and level design. Were you kind of relying on that? Um, that quality that we that we were talking about, the sort of suggestiveness of it, where you can't really translate anything nuanced uh, from a book, um, and you have to rely on, on that those sort of elements in order to to uh, to promote your work. Did you did you feel that that the imagination that, that the player would have to use in order to fill in the gaps would would um would, that would be what make what makes the play want to to check out the books to see if it really matches what they think it might be about as suggested through the way that the levels are put together uh, was that a sort of t- promotional technique that you had in mind i think so uh, a lot of it was just uh trying to find a fun way to put the player into juno's shoes and see what kind of stuff she deals with from her perspective and um we talked about how like sacrificing the the character and atmosphere building aspects of a narrative story when adapting it to an action game uh but i did find ways to somehow include it in another way um like the the snowy environment really helps give it this bleak atmosphere like you really feel like you're in this uh dystopian nuclear winter realm where you never see the sun uh the sky is eternally overcast and it's constantly snowing and cold and windy and there are these really terrible people running these settlements uh, that aren't as shanty town as uh, your typical like um, Fallout or other game like that, you know, because I didn't want anything exactly like that or like Metro. I wanted something that looked that showed that humanity had gotten back on its feet and it was it was thriving again. Um, but it was sort. It also had. It's supposed to have kind of a Western frontier aspect as well because it is very much a new frontier. We're living. We're living in the Ice Age. Um, in an alternate earth where this, where nuclear war actually happened uh, and things are a little different, but um, so I, I would try and think of little details like that to include in every level, to drive home the idea of what the atmosphere in this place is like and what kind of people live there. 
Um, but also uh, the most fun aspect was adapting the character, the kind of peoples that live there into the, the characters that you encounter while you're running, running and gunning through these maps. Uh, I made sure that every enemy had a distinct personality to set them apart from the others. So their personality would uh, kind of give you an idea of what kind of people live in this world, but also um, reflect their, their, their run on, on the enemy food chain so you'll notice like the first enemies you meet in the game are the shield maidens and they're like the little weak grunts they talk like dumb valley girls and they're overconfident but the second they yes. run the second you start shooting them they're like oh shit oh shit gotta get out of here because they're way out of their element you know they're just like new recruits they don't know who they're dealing with and the further up the ladder you go you start getting to the the frat boys and the the, the block docs who are like basically male slaves who are trying trained to be aggressive douchebags so they act like aggressive douchebags and say all kinds of dirty shit to you um and they're 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 fearless and loyal and stupid so they just they're just they're easily killed and they don't run away from you um to the amazon to the elite amazon commandos who are basically basically talk to talk like right-wing nut jobs all the time uh, and talking down to you, calling you a degenerate and stuff like that you know it's like whatever personality i could find that matched uh, that character's place in the hierarchy and what kind of stuff they did um, and uh, reflected the, the atmosphere of the, the realm that it takes place in, I would go with. And I ended up with this array of uh, 40 different enemy types, including bosses and NPCs that you could shoot or leave alone. Uh, and they all had, pretty much all of them had distinct personalities that set them apart from each other. So it wasn't just their appearance and their behavior that would make them distinct. They would also like have this long list of various curses and taunts and stuff that they would say in various situations. Uh, and I think that more than anything really helped uh, bring, bring the the world of this, of the books alive in the game because it feels like it's populated by people, uh, which was another thing I, I wanted, I really wanted to do was um, most doom mods are very much uh, one man army up against an army, an army army of demons or ghosts or monsters of some kind and uh there's not a whole lot of mods where you're up against really twisted people like not even like mutants like in that amazing ashes tc that's coming out or might be out now which is very mad max and mad max inspired but just like you know like soldiers in a in a dystopian society under a dictator you know like something more in line with wolfenstein with the wolfenstein games and that's what i was going for because you don't see a lot of those in in doom mods it's always uh, you versus the monsters you versus the hellspawn you versus aliens not, not a lot of you versus a dystopian regime you know uh, especially a dystopian regime mostly run by by crazy women uh from planet Tumblr. <laughs> <laughs> did uh you, you this obviously must have been a lot of work for one person so beyond the voice acting did you, did you uh, have anyone else in the community contribute resources or anything like that no well the voice acting was actually borrowed from uh, other other games and similar genres uh, so i would love to uh, and i talked to someone in the doom community about it's like whether or not we could find people to put together actual original resources to repaint the entire game maybe add another episode or two and then sell it as an as its own standalone thing which would be cool but it's a lot of work and i have bad luck with collaborative projects with uh, people not coming through on their end um so i generally don't pursue it so i i focus on the project more as a free promotional thing that's fun to play with and hopefully people like it enough they would they would purchase the books um but if i could do like a paid standalone game of 
uh, based on winter, the winter agent Juno books. I would love to do that. Um, if not the doom engine, maybe something more like the fear engine. Cause I really like the shootouts and martial arts in those games. Mm. We, we, we talked a little bit about how, since you mentioned it's specifically from the get go, multi multimedia, um, it is somewhat reciprocal. Uh, and so that wasn't just a one way street when you were inheriting qualities in the book and applying yes, it to absolutely. the game. So what, what aspects did you, did you expand the world any f- to accommodate the game specifically that you, that you then realized would actually work quite well if you work them into the books proper? Absolutely. That was, uh, that was another reason I did it. Uh, well, the main reason I started it was purely as a promotional thing because I'd only planned it to be a little seven level skirmish. Uh, so it was basically the first episode originally, the Galheim hit. And then I realized I really enjoyed uh, designing the levels for it and characters and stuff. And I really enjoyed playing through it. Uh, and I was also getting ideas for the book series that I hadn't thought of when it was just a book series. Because um, I was, I was, because for the first time, I'm like seeing a visual representation of the world that Juno lives in. And I'm thinking of other little little details and nuances I hadn't thought of for the for the book or ways to refine and and uh, tweak the elements that already existed in the books. So Did you um, end up then thinking in orthogonal walls whenever you were actually writing the book? <laughs> no, I didn't. Uh, that's, that just a, that's just a map design quirk for me. Uh, I don't know why I do that. I guess I guess that was part part of that part of it is my limitations as a as a map designer because I'm I'm very anal retentive. Oh, don't worry, that wasn't a subtle um, jab. <laughs> yeah, and uh, and part of it is to kind of retain the Wolfensteinish feel because like I I wanted to I wanted it to feel like somewhere somewhere between Wolfenstein and Rise of the Triad a little bit stylistically. Uh, so like only having certain uh, height variances and certain uh, wall angles most of the time really gives it kind of a Wolf 3D esque feel and helps it to feel like. Um, with the combination of not using Doom Guy hands for the guns, like going out of my way to find some gun hands that l- look like they're straight out of a, a an obscure shooter from the mid '90s, instead of using the now iconic Doom Guy hands, which are instantly recognizable no matter how you dress them. Yeah, um, it reminds really me of that re- Seinfeld yeah. episode in which he has man hands. Yeah, yeah, uh, and uh, that that helped to give it a feel that it's like a lost. Sh- first-person shooter from the mid-90s that no one no one found out about until now, um, which is which is part of what I was going for. Um, but, but yeah, so I st- um, I'm, I'm suddenly having this visual representation, of the, interactive visual representation of the world that I'm writing in, and I'm, put, and I'm populating it and putting these objects in there that are useful, and I'm thinking, it's like, we could actually use this in the book. That would be interesting, you know? Or, or I'm changing the names of stuff in the book that because I think of a better name for the game. Um... Names of locations and what they're for, you know, it's, it's it's kind of giving me an opportunity to really like build what a sheriff's office, for example, would be like in one of these snowy dystopian settlements uh, versus what the what the the military compound in a larger metropolitan area would be like. Uh, what's the distinction between the shanty town settlements and the big um, city states where where the the dictators actually live, you know, like what's the visual distinction, uh, what are the right. streets laid out? Like, yeah, basically giving me, giving me virtual Legos to play with and actually construct these locations. So I have a better, a better understanding of the world I'm in. And then I go back to the books and I'm fleshing them out. And even, uh, part of the draw of project dining was that each episode had a little bit of a backstory in the PDF file, uh, written in the style of the novels, which then inspired me to like expand on those and write their own books based on the, based on that. So, I end up writing this one book. I'm thinking about making a series. I end up making this one shot 
seven level spinoff game to help promote it. And then I start making more levels for it and getting more ideas. And then I start using ideas from the game to write even more books for the series. So that's really how it kind of feeds off of each other. You know, it starts with the book, it fleshes out with the game, it goes back to the book and I flesh out things in the book and then I start putting those in the game as well. So then it ended up doing a full um, 360 in this case, where now I've released um, the first episode of Midgard Outlaw, which is designed to be more in more in the same style of the books themselves, because Project Iron was more sci-fi heavy uh, than the books are. Uh, there's very little sci-fi elements in the books a bit beyond the fact that it's like nuclear winter and an alternate earth uh so it's more speculative fiction than anything so after after the after project Iron i helped me flesh out the book series more i started designing midgard outlaw to be more like the book series than project Iron was um and in the meantime i'm trying to finish the third novel in the series this by the end of this month, which is based on the main storyline from Project Iron so like the first and third episodes. So I'm marrying those together and expanding it and um, really fleshing out the villains, and they're becoming a lot of fun. Deliberately limiting the height variation is an interesting one to me, you know, to, to sort of, um, uh, with reference to, to Wolfenstein 3D, were there any other commonly accepted or accepted practices in level design that you had to hold in your mind and then just consider it and then actually know that would not work uh, in order to, to sort of better the image of the world that I'm trying to build here there, with the accepted things you needed to curb you feel? Yeah. Even, well, even with the, um, just my texture choice and such was really important with that aspect because um, even the book covers, uh, I have a very limited palette of uh, white, brown and bl- and different shades of blue. And I tried to do that a lot with the level design as well. So uh, whereas Quake is mostly brown and um, sewage colored um, with with high, with red highlights here and there, Project Iron Yard has is uh, very much white and brown with some blue highlights, uh, and that that helps establish the sense of cold uh, during nuclear winter and the the bleakness of the world that she lives in. Because there's it's like every town is run by some kind of despot, and uh, some towns are better off than others. But she's she's very clearly in a world with a lot of really nasty people that have too much power because she's butting heads with them everywhere she goes, uh, and and that really helps establish uh, the general mood of of the the world it takes place in and the series in general. Uh, so that's sort of the official color palette. So I, I use almost exclusively textures with those three co- that were predominantly those three colors, uh, and and it helps kind of, kind of match them with the book series as well because like I said. It, the same with the book cover. I've, I've, my art's always been very minimalist in general, uh, and part of, part of that goes back to my design philosophy of working fast and minimalist. Uh, partly because I, I have so much I want to do, I'm overproductive, and I don't have enough time to do it. So how can I develop a style that allows me to churn stuff out as quickly as possible, but still retain enough quality uh, that people can enjoy it? Um, and part it's partly because of my limited attention span. <laughs> You know, and which which is a problem for a lot of people is limited attention span. So how do you how do you get around that? Well, you get really good at speed mapping. <laughs> you get good at speed mapping, so you can fin- so you can finish designing the map, so you can put it out, so people will actually see the map through to the end <laughs> with their own limited attention span. So that's that's kind of the name of the game these days, unfortunately. Uh, that's a big thing to be aware of with any creative outlet is um, keeping it short, but but uh, keeping it quality heavy and yeah, yeah and keeping it short keeping it short uh is another limitation to spark creative creativity as well you know it's just like you're not making this huge expansive game you're making a seven level episode 
and for a promotional tool. How do you can what kind of story can you can and and universe can you condense into a seven level episode with only like four intermission screens? You know, and then your imagination runs wild and you come up with something. Hopefully, hopefully that's fun. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it was ambitious to start with. You know, speed mapping or no um, attached, but uh, I think particularly since the community is filled up more with people who are probably designed more for the game than they do play the game itself. Maybe that maybe that's too too harsh <laughs> an assessment. Well, it does feel that way sometimes. So I imagine you really want to hook them fast when uh, if you're doing something like this. Um, yeah, with with a lot of things. That's, that's sort of my philosophy when I'm writing too. I tend to um, uh, you're you're very much a writer yourself, I I believe, right? Yeah, well, I mean, I call myself, so you, part, part of my shtick is calling myself a writer before actually having published anything, so that is a motivational thing. Well, that's, 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 that's a lot of writers. I mean, publishing is, is a whole other can of worms, and it's it's really a pain in the ass. So, <laughs> And I've, I've yeah, um, basically, they said, that was what Mark Twain said, if you're thinking about writing, don't, unless you can't help yourself. Those are the people who should be writing, because they're the only ones who will be happy with it. Because chances are you're not going to make it as a writer when you get published. You might. You might be one of the few, but you're probably going to have to keep your day job <laughs> and stick with writing as a hobby status like the rest of us. Um, but it's it's uh, the thing I typically do with um, all my writing and all the chapters in my books is uh, s- starting, starting a story or that part of the story in media res or as close as I can to it. To have something that like the hook that grabs reader and immediately pulls them in and wants to finish reading the chapter, if not the book. And that's and that's really important. Like the first sentence, if not the first paragraph of anything you write is probably the most important, because if you have a strong beginning and a strong ending, they'll forgive any problems in in between. Almost guaranteed, unless unless the in between is absolute garbage. <laughs> yeah, from the from the few books that I've been reading recently, I have found that that tends to be the case. Uh uh, there will always be some negative review up or something on um, on Amazon, but they'll invariably give them well, however many stars that, that renders positive because you know they're trying to think of something bad to say and they tend to think about the middle section, but otherwise they just generally like the whole thing because it has a strong ending. Yeah, yeah. and the best way and the best way to write a chapter book really is to start it with a real strong hook and then end it with a really strong cliffhanger. Because then they have to turn the page, start the next chapter to see what happens next. That's how pretty much all the John Gardner James Bond books were written. Even the bad ones, I could not put down because they were they were page turners because they were structured that way. Um, and I, I, I guess um, map design really has a similar aspect to it as well. Like you got to have a really strong opening to really grab the player and pull them into the world and engage them. Because if it starts off slow and uninteresting. You know, it's it's not going to work. And it could be like a really interesting opening fight or just a really strong sense of atmosphere right from the get go. Um, but as for people designing more than playing, I don't know this that might be true. But when you're designing the maps, you have to play them so damn much that it that might be the reason why they're designing so much and not playing maps as as much because they're so burnt out play testing their own crap over and over again <laughs> well yeah it's it's i mean part of it's exaggeration just for effect in order to, yeah. <laughs> to illustrate the point but it, it also is a way of saying that we because more stuff the community is so bloody prolific these days that we don't we don't dwell on any one release for much longer than we ordinarily might and so we tend not to uh unearth any of its hidden qualities or whatever so uh they could very well be and probably is uh, in 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 your works, uh, uh, more stuff that if people just looked beneath the surface, they'd find more. Even though you feel that nagging 
insistence on on bringing things to the surface in a more visceral way that people can immediately identify with. Um, yeah, and I've 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 seen a couple of people on the forum on the development threads for Project Einar and uh, Midgard Outlaw who actually took the time to read the the backstory and really enjoyed it. And um, it's it's the, the backstory for all of those games is written a lot like the novels, and it's the same kind of stuff. And now I'm doing a book based on Project Underguard, so that will be that will be even more fun, hopefully. What's the projected um, release date or month or yeah? I was I was shooting for having it my uh, NaNoWriMo project. Uh, people listening who don't know NaNoWriMo means uh, I think it's National Novel Writing Month or National November Writing Month. I'm for not writers, sure. I've heard, yeah. for, for, I've heard uh, both, but basically you finish a novel in a month. Either you start it and write it through the course of the month and finish it, or you take a novel that you've been meaning to finish and just haven't gotten around to it, and you finish it. You spend that month just working on that specifically and finishing it. And that's what I'm trying to do uh, with this with this book. Uh, I want to try, because I've been struggling with it all year. It's because it's it ended up being like the most epic in scope of of the of the series so far because there's because of the the kind of world-threatening situation of these robotic cyber drones being airdropped anywhere in the world that the bad guys want and juno has to juno flashes back to when she first encountered this project and that's where the episode one storyline comes in and then the bulk of the book follows uh details from the episode three storyline where she goes to jotunheim and tries to track down who's behind it and it it has this very epic scope and a lot of stuff happens in the course of the story and it's i've been struggling with it all year just because it's it's so weighty compared to the first two um and so many different locations and and like stories within stories as on the as she goes through this adventure uh kicking ass and getting her ass summarily kicked back and forth (laughs) Um, so as for release date, I don't know. I, it would be nice if I could release it by the end of the year, but uh, I would have to have beta readers look it over first uh, before I do that. Um, so if I'm lucky sometime next, sometime beginning of next year, but uh, who knows? I, I definitely post announcements about it, and I should at some point post an announcement in the Project INER development thread, letting them know that I'm the next book I'm working on is based on Project INER. Uh, although the book is the book itself is called Last of the Ghost Lions. Well, at the very least, that'll offer me enough time to not have any excuses next time you come on the podcast. <laughs> actually talk about the content of what's in those books. Uh, but in the meantime, these are these are these are pretty good hooks, yeah. uh, and I look forward. Well, to people, the next well, one. I, I was I was planning to send you a present, uh, and thanks for having me on as the show. So when the book is done, I'll send you a free copy. You'll so you take can read it. You'll take it back now after the te- technical difficulties and, <laughs> and the quality of the podcast. He realized the te- that really the technical is. difficulties were entirely on my end. <laughs> so like that's I'm not blaming you for that. I was I, I was expecting something. Expect the worst. Hope for the best. <laughs> Well, I think that's actually a pretty good place to wrap it up. I think many of the things we're going to talk about later on the podcast, we managed to squeeze in in the first third or half. Um, uh, is, is there any easy way other than doing well that people can contact you if they're interested in your writings or want to ask you or contact you for other work, for illustrative stuff, for example? Yeah, the easiest way to contact me or see what I do, I just go to mikestoybox.net. It's my WordPress site. Anything and everything I do has, has links uh, posted on there. So you can just keep up to date on whatever I'm doing. Uh, I organize everything into tabs based on whether it's game design or miscellaneous writings or whatever. You can read my Doom novel things there. Uh, they have their own tab. 
Um, all my Doom projects are under the Doom Maps tab if you want to p- try playing Strange Eons or my other lesser-known mods like Project Iron Yard, Nerves of Steel, uh, Ghoul School 3D is a pretty fun one. Nobody's really played much yet. Uh, it's for Heretic, though. Um, and the the next Winter Agent Juno book to come out, hopefully soon, is uh, Last of the Ghost Lions, and it's based on the main story arc of the Project Iron Yard Doom mod, but much more fleshed out and much more nuanced. So. Um, anyone is a fan of the mods, they'll definitely want to check that book out when it comes out. All right, MP, it's been great. Uh, it's, it's been great being included on the podcast. I'm glad you had me on. It's been fun. Brilliant. And thank you for being the first to actually approach us. I know I've made a song and dance about that. <laughs> <laughs> I, I was afraid to, to ask uh, because I didn't, I didn't know how it worked. And I felt like if I reached out and asked, hey, can I be on the podcast? I feel like an egotistical prick. But so far, every time I've asked someone, "Can I be on the show?" they've either not responded at all, or they've been like, "Yeah, sure. I'm glad. You, I'm glad you reached out. Nobody ever reaches out, so come on, come be on the show." I'm like, "Really? That's kind of weird." Okay, sure. Didn't you didn't expect us to reek of so much desperation? <laughs> <laughs> anyway, thanks very much, Jimmy, and uh, this has been Doom Radio.